good morning. Happy May. Is doing all right? Anybody in here more excited than a teacher that it's the month of May? I don't know that that can be the case. But anyways, hope you guys are doing well today. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn uh, with me to Matthew chapter 3. We'll be there in just a minute. Um, but today we're jumping into week two of our series, The Jesus I Never Knew. And what we hope to do in this series is to provide each and every person uh, the opportunity to make an informed decision about Jesus. To look at Jesus and ask the question, is Jesus someone who is worth our worship? Is he worth being followed? Is he worth being trusted? And maybe it's making that decision for the first time, or maybe it's taking another step in your faith in light of who you see Jesus to be. And uh, last week, Phil kicked things off by looking at the incarnation of Jesus, which uh, tells us a story of the eternal son of God becoming man in the person of Jesus. And while that is an extremely complex idea, the good news we saw come out of that is that we serve a God who is humble, who is approachable, and who is a courageous God. And today we're going to jump into this second section where we're going to almost build on that idea as we look at Jesus, embrace what it means to be truly man. And in this uh, week, the thing that we're kind of going to wrestle through is this statement here. Jesus embraces what looks like weakness to overcome what looks like power. Jesus embraces what looks like weakness to overcome what looks like power. I think this is an important thing for us to wrestle through because over the last 2,000 years, a temptation that the church has faced over and over is um, the temptation to seize power, to seize control, to be seen as powerful in the world. But that's not just true for the church corporately. I think it's true for each and every one of us as individual believers. We love to look impressive to the world around us. We love to look like we have it all together. We love to look like we've got all the answers. And Jesus, in this story we're going to be looking at today, we are going to see that he walked in a way that looked like weakness. Now, as we look at the start of Matthew chapter 3, we see that Matthew chapter 3 opens up with John the Baptist, this man, proclaiming the message that the kingdom of God had come near. He was calling people to repentance, to be baptized, and people were responding. People were coming, being baptized, repenting of their sin, and saying that they wanted a piece of this kingdom. And then Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus tells John the Baptist that, that he too should be baptized. And John's like, uh, no, I'm not really qualified for this. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus says, this must be done to fulfill all righteousness. And then we're going to pick things up in verse 16, where we we find this John or sorry Matthew chapter 3 verse 16 and we're going to read through chapter 4 verse 11 it says as soon as Jesus was baptized he went up out of the water at that moment heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I am well pleased then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Will you pray with me as we get ready to jump into this passage? Father, we thank you for being a God who speaks who speaks your truth. And God, right now, I pray that you will give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today. God, that you will allow us to, to learn what it looks like to walk in light of what you say to be true. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, at this point in Jesus's life, as he comes to be baptized, it's kind of a weird thing to, to think about. I was just thinking about it this week. The reality is that at this moment, we don't know that Jesus has healed a single person. Not only that, but we don't have record of a single thing that Jesus has taught up to this point. Sure, we know from Luke chapter two that Jesus was in the temple as a 12-year-old being really impressive, but we don't know anything about what it is that he taught. We don't know that he has called a single disciple yet. It's like Jesus lived about 30 years up to this point in what seems like obscurity. I mean, that's so much true that that if you look later on when Jesus returns to his hometown, people see him and they're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, like what's going on here? What's so impressive? And what I love about this scene is that this is where Jesus's ministry starts. And before Jesus does a thing, there is a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus's ministry start by hearing God's word after he said, I am committed to doing what my father has sent me here to do. So what is this work that Jesus is committing to? Why is it that the the spirit coming down and alighting on him? Anybody here ever use the word alighting in a sentence? I never had either. I read it this week and I was like, Rests. So the spirit came and rests on him, okay? So spirit comes, rests on him, the voice comes. Why is that a big deal? Well, as I was reading this week, I realized that it, that it points us back to the Old Testament. Whenever we look at the spirit coming and resting on him, it should draw our attention back to Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, which reads like this. It says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So here we see this this picture, this prophecy of Jesus coming. And yet that um, Isaiah goes on to say in that prophecy that this uh, justice will come to the nations through suffering. So here we see that at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, he is embracing his call to be a suffering servant. 
The idea of, of the voice from heaven coming and saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased also draws our attention back to Psalm chapter two, verse seven, where the psalmist is pointing forward to this one who would come uh, to be king. And it says that he would be declared God's son. So here we see Jesus as this picture of a suffering servant and a royal son. Again, in this moment, you're gonna get sick of this statement before too long, but Jesus embraces what looks like weakness. Suffering in our world looks like weakness, but Jesus embraces this, what looks like weakness, to overcome what looks like power. So after this moment where Jesus is declared the son of God, after he has this incredible moment where the heavens open up, a voice speaks, the spirit comes down, we see this in chapter four, verse one. It says, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Right after Jesus is on this mountaintop moment, attack comes. This isn't anything new in scripture. If you look back at the Old Testament, you see the picture of Elijah, who was this prophet of God, who went up on this mountain and went up against hundreds of prophets for this other God. And God showed himself powerfully in that moment by sending fire down to confirm that he was the one true God, that Elijah was telling the truth. And he goes from literally being on Mount Carmel to being in the pits of depression almost immediately after that. Elijah went from this spiritual high to spiritual attack. I think many of us in this room have probably faced that too, right? You go from a moment, maybe it's choosing to put your faith in Jesus for the first time, or it's taking a bold step in your faith, and then it seems like there's just attack coming from all over. I mean, just in the last four days, I've talked to three different people that have mentioned an experience like this. It's been things like, like the loss of a job or the loss of a loved one or just turmoil in their life. And it's hard to understand what's happening, but we see that, that, this, that Satan loves to attack in these moments. He loves to try to take advantage of these chances. But I think when we're walking through these moments, it's easy at times to look at these moments and think that God is behind this, that God is the one doing the tempting. And yet I want us just to, to embrace two truths as we start this today, as we prepare to look through this. Number one, God is not the one doing the tempting. It says the spirit of the Lord led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted, but it doesn't say that God's the one doing the tempting. If you look throughout scripture, God has allowed Satan to tempt at times, but it's never God doing the temptation. And second truth is that uh, the devil's not able to operate, operate outside of God's design. So with that first point, I think the thing I want us to recognize is that oftentimes when Satan is attacking, when Satan is tempting, his goal in that is to trip us up, to lure us away from what we know to be true. And yet what I've seen in my own life, and I think what you'll see in scripture as well, is that God often uses these temptations from Satan to test his people, which means God's motivation isn't to trip us up. God's motivation is to strengthen us, to refine us in these moments. This is what God does. But I think that second truth is equally as important, this idea that, that Satan cannot operate on his own. He cannot operate outside of God's authority. Whenever there's a battle between God and Satan, it's not a battle of co-equals. 
We're about to see that here in the wilderness as Jesus is tempted. It's not like you have this battle of of Satan in one corner and Jesus in one corner and they are equal. No, Jesus has greater authority even though throughout this whole passage it looks like Satan is the one in control. We see at the end the one who's truly in control. Satan cannot operate outside of God's authority. As Jesus is in the wilderness, we're told that he is fasting in this moment. And fasting is the the practice of abstaining from food to really focus our attention upon God. Dallas Willard puts it like this. He, He talks about fasting as confirming our utter dependence upon God by finding in him a source of sustenance beyond food. And it's after 40 days and 40 nights of, of no food that we see one of my favorite uh, statements in scripture. He was hungry, okay? It's like, huh, who'd have thunk it? You know, 40 days, 40 nights, no food. He was hungry. But anyways, we have that moment where the tempter then comes to him. And whenever the devil's described as the tempter here, I think it shows us who the devil is at his court. He's a tempter. He's one who's going to try to draw us away from what's true. And he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, do you remember what God just said at the end of chapter three in Jesus' baptism? What does it tell us? He's baptized as he comes up out of the water. Heaven opens up and a voice comes down that says, this is my son whom I loved in him I am well pleased. And here after 40 days in the wilderness, the devil goes after God's word and says, if you are the son of God, why are you so hungry? If you are the son of God, why is it that you're walking through this challenge? The tempter here is saying he knows who Jesus is. But he tries to trip him up by saying your circumstances say something different about what your status is, what your identity is, what your power is. So the tempter tries to get Jesus to use his status, his identity, and his power for selfish means to fulfill his own desires instead of walking in God's design for him. And in this moment, Jesus again embraces what looks like weakness to overcome what looks like power. The thing we need to recognize here as we look at this passage is that Satan's attack with Jesus here is nothing new. It's what Satan has been doing from the beginning. Whenever God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve in his likeness. We're told in chapter three that the serpent comes to to them and says, if you eat this fruit, you will become what? like God. God has just created Adam and Eve in his likeness and the serpent comes in and says, if you do this, you will become like God. Same thing here. God declares, you are my, or this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And what happens? Satan says, if you are the son of God, the tempter is continually trying to get Adam and Eve and in Jesus in this moment to do something to become like God when God's invitation was to do something because they were already like God. God tried to get Adam and Eve to live out of being image bearers of God, to display that to the world around them. But Satan is saying, hey, if you really want to experience this, you need to do something to earn it. And I think that that Satan tries the same thing with you and I as well. It's a temptation to do something to prove or to truly experience the identity that God has already said is a reality. 
You and I are are tempted to use God for our benefit. I think we're tempted to believe that if God really loved us, we wouldn't face hard circumstances. We're tempted to use what God has given us or entrusted to us for our own gratification or to impress others around us. I think we hear the, the words of Satan when we hear, if you are a child of God, why don't you use your money to satisfy your wants or to impress the world around you? If you are a child of God, why doesn't God want you to be happy? Why doesn't God just, just tell you to do whatever you want? If you are a child of God, why would you ever say no to sexual pleasure when God, if he's good, would want you to be happy, right? Why would you ever say no to your own desires? If you are a child of God, what kind of child are you? Again, Satan uses the same sort of temptation he has since the beginning. And in this moment, Jesus chooses to remain hungry, which looks like weakness, rather than use his power to turn stones into bread, which looks like power. And he responds to Satan by actually quoting God's word. There's an ancient uh, monastic book that's called this. It has like the coolest title ever. So I'm going to read this so I don't mess it up. There's a, it's like from the 600 or like the year 600 or something like that. But there's a monk that wrote a book. It's called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. All right. That's pretty good. This morning, I was talking to my five-year-old on the way to church, and I was telling him what it is that I was going to be preaching on. I was like, it's the temptation of Jesus. Is there anything I need to make sure that people know about how you fight temptation? And he said, speak God's truth, okay? So Abe would have been a lot shorter if he would have been up here today. But anyways, uh, here we see Jesus do just that. He uses this, this phrase, it is written, which means he's pointing back to what was written in the Old Testament. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus here is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy. He points to a time in the nation of Israel when the Israelites were questioning God's love and care of them after God had delivered them out of slavery. The nation accused God of delivering them out of slavery only to leave them in the wilderness to starve and die. It was a complete rejection of what God had revealed himself to be, of who God had revealed himself to be to the nation of Israel. Why is it that we're just out here starving? And even after that questioning, even after that moment, God provided miraculously for the people this thing called manna, which was this flaky bread-like substance. And he gave them quail to eat as well. God provided for his people. And now as they're getting ready to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three, Moses points back to that moment and says what Jesus says here, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Jesus quotes this here, it's a bold declaration that obedience to his father in heaven and that exercise of trust was a true source of energy for Jesus. And again, Jesus embraces what looks like weakness to overcome what looks like power. Jesus embraces hunger rather than use his power for selfish purposes. But the devil isn't done yet. And in fact, he learns a little bit from Jesus's response to him. And he decides if Jesus can use scripture to resist temptation, I can use scripture to actually tempt Jesus. So so the devil chooses to actually use and twist scripture. Let's look at verses five and six. It says, then the devil took him to the holy city, that would be Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, 
throw yourself down. Then he uses that key word or key phrase to point back to that he's quoting from the Old Testament. He says, for it is written, and he quotes Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Again, Jesus is taking to the highest point on the temple here. I have to be honest, I don't really get what the temptation would be here. I hate heights, so that doesn't seem very tempting. But if we look at what's going on at this point in this circumstance, I think it can make a little bit of sense. Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, by himself fasting. If there was ever a point where Jesus felt like he was isolated or alone, I think it's this moment, right? Not only that, but he's getting ready to go and start his ministry. And can you imagine like a better way to like show people that you're the real deal than like climbing up on a building the first week of October during fall festival and jumping off the building for everyone to see? If you don't know what fall festival here is, if you're new to Evansville, just wait till October. Someone's probably already told you about it. It was probably part of the cell to come to Evansville. I don't know. But in this moment, Jesus goes to the temple, which was always filled with people. He's taken there and he said, hey, jump off of here and the angels will catch you. God's promised to protect you. Why not force God's hand? Why not test him to show that he truly does care for you? Again, this temptation is nothing new. In the garden, the serpent tempts Eve by calling God's word into question, by by asking whether or not what God said was really true. He starts off by talking to her and saying, uh, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Then Eve responds by saying, no, he said we must not eat from this one tree in the garden. We, we must not even touch it, even though that's not exactly what God said. We'll move beyond that now. So she responds by saying, no, it's just this one tree. God said, if we eat from it, if we even touch it, we will die. And then what does the serpent do? Questions God's words. He says, you surely won't die. It's just a fruit. Why not do it? Why not take this step? He goes on to question God's word by saying what God said would happen would surely not actually happen. Here in this passage, the devil points to Psalm 91 and to God's promises and says, why not take advantage of God's promised protection? This is the same temptation the people of Israel faced in the wilderness, which is what Jesus again points back to in verse seven, when he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, Jesus is pointing back to Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 16, where Moses is again preparing the people to go into the promised land and pointing back to a time when they were coming out of Egypt, when the people of God had experienced God's miraculous delivery out of slavery. They had seen God actually split the sea, let them walk across, wipe away their enemies so they were safe. They had seen God miraculously provide this mysterious food. And then the very next day or very next story we see in scripture. I don't know if it was the next day. They go to this place and they're like, no water. We're going to be out here and die. It doesn't matter all that God has done to show his provision up to this point. They begin saying, there's no way that God is actually going to care for us. There's no way God is going to do what he said he was going to do. There's no way God is going to deliver us into this promised land. He can't even get us out of the desert. (laughs) And God still provides for them. But Moses looks back on this story and says, hey, 
Don't put the Lord your God to the test. Trust what you know to be true about God and his character. Trust that God is going to come through no matter what. Here, I think we are again tempted consistently to give in to the same temptation. To see our life circumstances and say, God must have abandoned us. God must not care for us. God must not be who I thought he was. God is not being true to his character. And then we try to set up ways for God to prove it. And here we see Jesus say, we can trust God and we can trust his character. We're called to trust him and his provision. Then comes the third and final temptation in verses eight and nine. It says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. The devil here is uh, giving Jesus the chance to experience being the king of kings that is recognized as the king of kings. He is given the chance to be seen as the known ruler of all things on earth. He's given this temptation to step into this. And again, Jesus is coming out of 30 years of living in obscurity, of coming from a place called Nazareth, which was such a big deal that whenever Jesus first came on the scene in the book of John, we see that there's someone trying to get another guy to follow Jesus. He's telling his friend, hey, I think we found the Messiah. And the guy responds by saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Is there anything good that comes from there? And here he's given the opportunity to experience power right then, right now, seeing, known, acknowledged power in that moment. Even though this title of King of Kings, of being ruler of all things, was something that was promised to him. Here, the devil is trying to give him a way to do that without walking the hard road. But what was the price of such a claim? It was bowing down to worship the enemy of God. Now, we've seen throughout this passage how Jesus embraced what looked like weakness to overcome what looks like power. But in this moment, we are going to see while the entire passage looks like Satan is the one in control, in this moment, we see that Jesus was the one in control the entire time. It's just that power looks different than maybe what Satan thought. Philip Yancey puts it like this, looking at this moment and this difference in the power. He says, the temptation in the desert reveals a profound difference between God's power and Satan's power. The third temptation here makes it clear because Satan cannot imagine why Jesus wouldn't grasp at power when the opportunity presented itself. Up to this point, even in the gospel of Matthew, we see in Matthew chapter two that Jesus was recognized as a king worthy of worship as a baby, okay? We don't know what happened after that a whole lot. We see that John the Baptist already pointed to him as the Messiah, but but again, what Satan is calling him to here is to change his allegiance, which would result in the end that God promised him becoming king, but without the cost of suffering and obedience to God's purposes. The temptation was to experience a good end, being king of kings, without the painful means of the cross. If Jesus chose to worship and trust the devil rather than God, he would receive the kingdom of this world without the suffering that lay before him on the cross. He would receive what looks like power without having to walk the path of suffering, a path that looks like weakness. And yet, if we know anything about the devil from the rest of scripture, is that he's a liar, (laughs) 
that this probably wouldn't have turned out like this anyway. He's just trying to draw Jesus away from God's design of what God had called him to. And up to this point, Satan looks really powerful, right? He's able to show him all the kingdom. He's able to take him to the top of the temple. All of these things look great. And yet Jesus in this moment shows that he is the one with true power. Jesus said to him, it tells us in verse 10, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Immediately Satan leaves. Jesus again points back to Deuteronomy chapter six, where God or where Moses is telling the people of Israel not to give in to the temptation to worship the gods that that they had in Egypt or the gods that the nations have in Canaan, but to worship God, the God uh, Yahweh alone. And then he shows this control in this moment again by commanding Satan to leave and he leaves and we see that the angels then come and care for him. The very thing he was tempted to do in that second temptation, God actually came through on as Jesus continued to submit to God's design. Now, whenever we see the powerful moment of Jesus speaking to the devil and the devil leaving, I think we're probably left with a longing for this kind of power, right? We're left with a desire to uh, step into this thing. But, but I think a challenge that we all face is that oftentimes we, we want the results that Jesus had here without walking in the way of Jesus. What do I mean here? Well, I think that we often want to experience victory over temptation without experiencing the wilderness. We want to hear God affirm our identity as children without withdrawing to be alone with God. We want the the strength of Jesus' relationship with his father without the testing and temptation. We want the power that, that comes with exaltation without walking the road that looks like weakness. We want to fulfill our own desires. We don't want to say no to pleasure. We don't want to to do the hard work of withdrawing and learning the voice of our father that he invites us into. We don't want to deny ourselves. And yet, if we want to experience what God has invited us into, we must walk this road. But it's not one we walk alone. It's one that Jesus invites us to walk with us. And the good news of Jesus coming and living out of man is that Jesus sees, knows, and feels what it looks like to walk in this world as truly human and facing everything that comes with that. And yet, he offers a better way, a truer way of walking as a person. The world around us tells us that true power is found in fulfilling each and every desire we have instantly. If we have a desire and we say no to that desire, we're depriving ourselves, the world says. True power is being able to embrace that right away. The world tells us that true power is found in choosing safety and security that is seen by all. It's visible for all to see, to be vulnerable or to be put in a vulnerable situation where weakness might be put on display is to be avoided at all costs. The world says that that power is to be pursued at all costs. To not climb the ladder is nonsensical. You should get, seek to get as much power as you can, as quick as you can. And yet in Jesus, we see that true power is found in weakness. True power is found in submitting our desires to God rather than being driven by them. When we give in to our desires being the thing that drives us, we actually find ourselves enslaved to them. 
True power is found in doing what might look foolish, yet is in line with God's heart. True power is w- patiently waiting on, God's and, on God and his timing. True power is found in walking with and trusting Jesus rather than seeking to seize control for ourselves. And as we walk this way with God, he actually allows us to experience what it looks like to walk in this power that he invites us into. You see, we, as we walk through this world, are facing a spiritual battle. But like we said at the top, it's not a battle of co-equals. I love the way one author puts it in looking at this passage. He writes this. He says, Jesus teaches that our spiritual warfare is with a defeated devil because we are in the company of a conquering Christ. See, we are fighting a defeated devil because we are invited to walk with Christ in this. We're introduced to this conquering Christ in this battle against temptation that we see here, but we see this pop up again throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew 16 is a a passage that's pretty well known. It's a passage where Peter uh, uh, is asked, who is it that, that you say that I am? And he responds by saying, you are the son of, you are the Messiah, the, the son of the living God. And right after that, uh, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples that he was going to go ahead and he was going to actually die on a cross. He was going to be raised again three days later. And Peter's a really humble guy. So he responds and says, never, Lord, that's not what's going to happen. But Jesus turned to Peter in that moment and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You have, or you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Jesus didn't stop facing temptation after walking in the wilderness. Here again, Satan tries to actually speak through Peter to try to get him to experience the life of Messiah without a cross. See, the reality is that you and I, uh, to experience the benefit of Jesus as king, it required Jesus to actually walk through and choose the cross, to endure the pain that you and I deserve, to actually take that on himself in the cross. And yet in that moment, Jesus conquered sin, death, and evil forever as he resurrected from the grave. And if you and I are going to ultimately experience victory over sin, over temptation, We must choose to submit that to Jesus. We must get to know this God who he introduces us to. We must get to know God more and more, know his character, know his word. We have to get alone with him and experience the goodness of his voice and take some time to hear what God says. See, the incredible truth that we see in scripture is that if we submit our lives to Jesus, that, that voice that God speaks down upon Jesus at his baptism where he says, this is my son whom I love and him I am well pleased. God speaks that same voice over us. First John 3, 1 says, see what love the father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God and that is what we are. Question is, do, do we live from that? Or do we live for that? Do we live from our status of children of God or do we seek to constantly earn what we think it looks like to be a child of God? The purpose of this series, like we saw last week and saw at the top, is for each and every one of us to have the chance to make an informed decision 
about who Jesus is and choose whether or not we will worship, follow, and trust him. A lot of times we seek to follow what looks like power. But here we see Jesus give us a picture of true power. That when we submit to him, we actually experience freedom. Jesus chooses to submit himself so you and I can experience freedom and walk with him. If you've already made the decision maybe to follow him, I hope you will see today as an encouragement to take another step, to take a deeper step into knowing who God is, into knowing his word, to committing to withdraw, to know what it is that God says, to experience this spiritual warfare we walk through and recognize that it's against a defeated devil because we're walking with a conquering Christ. But I think sometimes for us, it's, it's really hard for us to maybe get there. So as we wrap up, I just want to mention a couple things that could be great resources for you. Maybe if you feel like you're stuck, you're in a rut, you can't figure out what it means to walk in this freedom that God has given us as his children. There's two things I want to point you to. One is our counseling center. We have a wonderful counseling center here at Crossroads step into that. Another thing is freedom prayer, where there's a group of people who will walk and pray with you to see what it looks like to embrace the truth of who God says you are and how to combat the lies of the enemy as well. Regardless of where you are, I hope you will take a step to walk in who God says you are instead of being stuck in these attacks from the enemy. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, I thank you so much for being a God who loves us, who cares for us. God, whose word we can trust. God, I pray right now that you will help us to embrace who you say that we are rather than giving into the lies of the enemy, rather than seeking to believe that we always have to earn another status or another level. Um, God, we want to walk in who you say we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.